This week, we sat down with Eric Scott. Eric is a partner at Sci-Fi VC, a firm founded by Max Levchin, the co-founder of PayPal and Affirm. At Sci-Fi VC, Eric has led investments in several emerging companies in fintech and biotech, such as Submergent, Unity, and ClearTax. He graduated with an economics degree from Claremont McKenna College. Thank you so much for uh, your time today. Um, the first question we had for you is, how did you initially get into VC? Sure. Thanks for thanks for having me. First of all, um, I got into venture on accident. So I started a company when I was an undergrad uh, down at Claremont McKenna, and moved up uh, to the Bay Area because I got a little bit of funding. And ostensibly, I ran that company directly into the ground. Knew I needed to <laughs> attach myself to somebody who really knew what they were doing. Uh, so at first, I joined my uh, my competitor, it's a company called Wantful. I ended up getting laid off from Wantful. Still knew I needed to go somewhere where I could really learn a whole lot uh, and found out through a friend of a friend that this guy named Max Levchin was looking for something called a technical assistant. Technical assistants are young, hungry, technically oriented people who usually have a PhD or master's in computer science uh, and their job is to build things for the principal, look into random technologies for the principal and eventually in the case of Max, start a company uh, with the principal. And I knew I was deeply underqualified, but I reached out to Max, kind of guessed his email, uh, and he got back to me. And knowing that I wasn't a great computer scientist, he still decided to hire me. Around six weeks into trying to build stuff for him, it became very obvious that I was not the guy to actually be coding. Uh, but I had sort of stumbled into a pitch meeting where these two very talented entrepreneurs had pitched Max, and I gave him sort of three paragraphs of analysis. Uh, and he read my analysis and basically said, "How about you start doing this investing thing more?" Uh, and around a year into helping him with his angel investing, he decided that he wanted to go and run a firm full time, which is the company that he's currently the CEO of has has been for the past four or five years. Uh, and that sort of left this opening for me to sort of pick up the investing operation and, and run with it. That's an awesome story of how you got into investing. So when you were going to college, you definitely did not want to go into venture capital. What were your ambitions and plans when you were in college? Uh, the first and maybe second year I was in college, I thought I was going to go into investment banking. I said, I'm going to do investment banking. Uh, my brother had gone down that route. And after a couple of years of that, I'm going to go into private equity. And then maybe I'll you know retire with... $20 million by the time I'm 35, even though I've basically spent my productive youth just, you know, going bald and stressing out for, for a long time. Um, around a year and a half into college, I realized that uh, I actually really wanted to start a company. And I had this really clear memory of sitting in my room back in Chicago, uh, talking to my brother about his experience in investment banking, and him basically getting really excited talking about the personalities, not who were in banking, but on the other side of the transaction, the entrepreneurs that he helped, that he uh, would help basically sell their companies. And that sort of started a snowball effect of me wanting to learn how to build things, wanting to learn how to manage, wanting to learn how to operate. Um, so by the time senior year rolled around and all my friends were applying to investment banks and management consulting jobs, because that's what Claremont McKenna is really sort of known for, uh, I said, you know what, forget this. I'm going to take my 
sort of minor in computer science and learn how to build a website. And that's that's how I, I guess, got my first job uh, working for myself. What was the company that you started? It was an e-commerce platform. So it was called From.us, and it'll let you split the cost of a gift between friends. So we would all pitch in 50 bucks and uh, buy somebody a $150 item, and we would take care of all the logistics and made a seamless user experience and things like that. Uh, if I had known then what I know now, I would have just tried to start Venmo because what we were really building, what we should have been building, <laughs> was a payment solution. And instead, right. we were trying to build this crazy, beautiful consumer product, and that just just wasn't it. Just wasn't the right approach. What were some of the insights that you learned while working on that company? Um, that's a really good question. So I don't think I learned very much about how to run a successful company. <laughs> I think what I learned a ton about was what I'm personally good at, what I'm personally not good at. Uh, but broadly speaking, in my two to three years of running that company and recruiting people and building product and then pivoting and then pivoting again and then resetting and pivoting again, raising some money, all of that tactical knowledge of how to succeed a business combined is far less than the amount that I learned in my first six months working for Max, watching him launch Glow, get it off the ground. Uh, I joined right after the launch of a firm, so I didn't see that. Um, but I did see sort of what it was like operating that in the first year and a half when they were still getting their footing. And watching that process of success was far more valuable than, than three years of. Do you have any specific memories or anything that kind of simulated that thought early on in your childhood? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's ever been a moment when I didn't know I was going to go into business. Like from the time I was very young, conversations around the dinner table were about selling steel, making customers <laughs> satisfied, managing employees, hiring, firing, hopefully not firing. Mm -hmm. um, I remember years when business was good for my dad. I remember years when business was bad. Um, and, you know, I always looked up to him for being able to sort of reinvent the business uh, into what is today like the modern day version of, of Scott Stainless Steel and raise a family in a very, very comfortable lifestyle. Um, yeah, that played, that played a really big role. So do you think that, uh, so business is obviously encompasses all these different industries. Is there a particular set of industries that attracts you in particular mm. um, and industries that you're now seeing yourself more interested in as an investor? Yes, I think the business can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I think for my dad, for instance, it meant like this is a, a lifestyle choice. This is going like, to provide for my family. And for me, it's much more about, uh, I think, creativity and like seeing a cool social impact on, on the world. Like, there's a lot of ways to make a lot more money than early stage venture capital. Uh, so some of the industries that I think are going to be most impactful today are virtual reality, synthetic biology, uh, undoubtedly Internet of Things, however you define that, and 
probably cryptocurrencies, although I'm not quite sure how. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll impact all of them. It could. It could. It, it, I mean, it's already it's already impacting money. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the. It, it, it's already. I think it's hard to argue that it's not impacting two things right now. The first thing that's impacting is money. The second thing that's impacting is itself. So it's this interesting technology in that it's reversed two social rules. First of all, it's disrupted itself before it's disrupted most other things. Second of all, it's basically a Ponzi scheme that in the size of the Ponzi scheme makes itself legitimate. So I'm, I'm not, you know, to be clear, like I'm not the first one to have noted this. Like I think Naval talks about it a lot. Um, but that is a, this really interesting idea. It's like, it's a fraud and everyone who's gotten involved knows that it's a fraud and in it being a fraud, it has become non-fraudulent. So like, that, that is crazy. <laughs> yeah. What are the kinds of companies that you think are interesting right now? Uh, I think the fundamentally most important question to ask is why is the product or the application at the end of this cryptocurrency better suited to be decentralized versus done in a centralized database. And trust may or may not have something to do with that answer. So I think there's a lot of things where the crypto crypto community overestimates the, uh, the harm that trust does in a system. But there are some applications where they are I think accurately assessing the amount of harm that that trust plays in a system. So, an example of uh, do you have any examples of situations for each one where like the trust is actually as harmful as you as people yeah. think it is? And yeah, so we can look at Bitcoin as an as an example. I think if you truly want. Uh, a store of value that anybody can use and anybody can use to transfer their wealth from one party to another that is not best suited for a centralized authority. Um, you can also take a look at Filecoin, which is very uh, timely coming to bring up. I think for the vast majority of situations, it doesn't really make any sense to not store your data on a trusted centralized party, but you can imagine scenarios where it makes a lot of sense to not have a single authority where you're storing all of your sensitive data. Um, I don't really care who has access to most of the photos, maybe all, probably all the photos on my iPhone, so I'm fine putting them in Dropbox. And I prefer if they didn't get hacked because I do want to have some level of privacy, but my situation is vastly different than somebody who's living in, say, Venezuela or Bahrain and uh, or Qatar and potentially has information that could disrupt an entire society. Uh, One question that we have is, how is Sci-Fi VC different from other VC firms out there? So let's start with the obvious answer. So Sci-Fi VC is... Uh, the Levchin vehicle for angel investing and to some degree venture investing. So Levchin's our Max and Ellie Levchin. Max was one of the founders of PayPal, uh, went on to play important roles in founding of Yelp. He's currently the CEO and co-founder of Affirm. Um, Nelly was the chief risk officer of Clarion Capital. She 
help manage around $3.5 billion of assets, I believe. Um, so sci-fi stands for science and finance, which is basically the combination of what everyone in here is interested in. It's science, sort of as you think it, hard science, and bio, AI, things like that, and finance is primarily fintech, but also just being able to finance the science that we think is cool. So being a single LP fund uh, where the LPs are also the GPs in the room helping make decisions every day gives you a lot of flexibility to do two things, really. So first of all, we have a broad mandate uh, when it comes to stage and check size and things like that. So we're primarily investing in seed stage stuff. but occasionally we'll do a later stage, you know, Series C and beyond. Um, so we invested in Unity last year. That was a multi-billion dollar round. We have another couple of investments that I can't talk about quite yet, but we're talking about companies that are sort of in the close to the billion dollar valuation watermark. Uh, it's obviously a vastly different profile than a sort of $5 million pre-money Series C, a few people working on the cool technology. Uh, Aside from the brand recognition you get from having Max as an investor, we really like to help our entrepreneurs in in a hands-on manner. So we will get as deeply involved in making strategic decisions as the CEO wants us to be. So there are some companies where the CEO, I basically talk with once a quarter, I get the update, he tells me what I want him to do, what want him or her to do, um, and often it's not. He says, nope, I'm good right now. Like, I am just going to go build my stuff, talk to you next quarter. We also have CEOs that we will hop and do sort of at the board level and be really involved in hiring, be really involved in just crunching the data to help them make smarter decisions, um, and truly be somewhat side to side with the entrepreneur. I will say the longer I do this for, the more I realize that the most valuable thing I think an investor can do is just provide data from past experiences. And that's really hard to do when you've been in venture for even five years. Uh, It takes 10, 15, maybe 20 years before you've seen enough success to be able to say, look, I know you're inventing something new and therefore this experience cannot perfectly be matched to any experience of my past, but here's four stories I have for you. And here's how I think they could help, but ultimately you as the CEO, it's your decision. What are some things that you've learned from you know, working with tenured entrepreneurs and investors that have been like aha moments for you, like this is what I should be looking for in a company um, that, that looks like an attractive deal, or this is like an aspect of a company that I would like to incorporate in you know, a future venture that I start. Uh, so probably the m- most generalizable characteristic of a really good founder that I can think of is a bias towards doing. There are entrepreneurs that we work with um, 
and that pitch us that are extremely smart and extremely well credentialed and have fantastic networks and are talented. Uh, but in my experience, the characteristics that are most likely to, to determine success are that an entrepreneur, when put into a difficult situation, won't just sit there and think about what the best thing is. They'll do something, whatever it is. That's number one. Combined with number two is that they'll keep doing that over and over and over and over again. Uh, this is why you hear program talk about you know, investing in, in cockroaches because they can't be killed and they just keep on going. Um, but it is remarkable to see these people in the face of great adversity or even not great adversity, just like, lame day-to-day grind just continuing to go and build or sell i think it was i'm trying to think of no i can't uh ah yes i think it was kevin hartz uh now now at founders fund who first gave me the tidbit the 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 one-liner of uh you know look for people that have a bias towards doing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that really summed up what we look for yeah. very nicely. Let's shift our focus a little bit to uh, the portfolio companies um, that you have invested in. Um, what are some exciting ones in bio? So we've got a lot of cool stuff going on in bio. Uh, and for, from a lot of different perspectives. So you could argue, one could argue, I would argue that one of the most important technologies to be invented in the past 10 years is CRISPR. So CRISPR doesn't enable anything that hasn't been possible before to be done. It's, it's a DNA editing technology, but it enables more people to do it than ever before. So all of a sudden the cash cost and the skill level that you need to do true DNA editing is lower than it's ever been. Um, Can you give us a brief overview of what CRISPR is? Sure. For people who don't know, who have never heard about it? Sure. CRISPR lets you, it's called a guide RNA to an enzyme. Um, and the enzyme, if you can deliver it to the right cell, will go to the nucleus of the cell. Using the guide RNA, it will find a part of the DNA that it wants to either cut out entirely or replace with an additional strand of DNA, and then it will swap it out mm-hmm. for whatever you want it to be. Technologies like this have been around for a long time, but they've been prohibitively expensive to do at massive scale. Um, and you've needed at least a master's in biology, if not a PhD, to be able to pull this stuff off. And even when you did have the skills, sometimes you need to do it three or four times to get a successful a successful DNA transfer. CRISPR is far more accurate. CRISPR is easier. CRISPR is cheaper um, by orders of magnitude. And the result is that people are starting to do things with DNA that have never before been possible. So there's two broad sections of the world that I think about, and there's probably more that somebody better educated uh, in the space can, can do as well. But from my perspective, from an investor's perspective, there's the pharma aspect of things. Let's not call it the pharma aspect of things. Let's call it the human health aspect of this. So this means using CRISPR to edit human embryos, to uh, 
change people's genetic predisposition towards diseases or eliminate those diseases entirely. This means uh, using CRISPR to modify, let's call it like target viruses so that you can create biologics that like target specific cancer cells. Um, it means basically anything that affects human health. That stuff is really interesting. We tend to focus less on it because it looks like a pharma investment for the most part. And while we've made one and a half pharma investments and they've both turned out pretty well, we fundamentally don't have the expertise to, to make that call. Then there's the other side of the world. And this is what I'll just call like industry, lots and lots of industry. So there's, I think, $160 billion worth of goods that are fermented every year. Fermentation as a process has been around for thousands and thousands of years. The beer you and I drink is made with a bacteria, usually yeast, <laughs> uh, definitely yeast if it's beer. And for the first time ever, we are able to systematically change the actual DNA, the actual genetic makeup of the yeast that is responsible for producing that beer. Um, there's a ton of other proteins that are used. I mean, these are multi-billion dollar companies that, uh, that have proprietary strands of bacteria that they use to make materials and chemicals faster, better, more efficiently than, than other people. Um, and for the first time, that entire industry is up for grabs, it's up, or it's up for optimization. I think we're just at the beginning, we're just at the early innings of figuring out what we can make biology do to make our lives better as, as humans. So how do you see biotechnology playing a role in the future amidst all these other technologies that, from my perspective, are getting more pressed, like drones, AIs, cryptocurrency? Uh, where do you see biotechnology really integrating with these? So... Again, ignoring, ignoring human health, because I think that stuff will get a lot of press, uh, as, it, as it should. At first, it's going to be much more subtle. Just like any other technology platform, or rather, just like any other commercially viable technology platform, the first step is not to invent crazy stuff that no one has ever thought before possible. The first step is to optimize old industry. So that's why I start with $160 billion of fermented goods every year. That's where it's going to start. And nobody's going to write home about how such and such a company, hopefully Zymergen, <laughs> helped a huge multinational corporation optimize its fermentation process. Now, obviously, Wall Street analysts will pay attention to it, and that's great. That's great for all business. Um, but that's how it's going to start. And... That's going to play a huge role in sort of how effectively we can grow crops and eat and things like that. But again, nobody nobody writes home about that. It remains to be seen what will be invented with new Synbio capabilities. So you're already starting to see some things on the DNA computing side. Uh, that means using DNA fundamentally as a computer or using the cell as a computer. We're still in early innings, um, like really, really early innings. But people have been working on this for decades and not made too much progress. We made a ton of progress on DNA storage, but that's a sort of different different topic. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not exactly sure what the crazy application we haven't thought of yet will be in Synbio. Uh, then again, if I was, I'd probably be out there trying to trying to start that company. 
what are the applications of DNA computing? What are the advantages of DNA computing over other forms of computing? So I'll also break this down into two different categories. So there's DNA storage, DNA computing. DNA storage is quite literally saying, hey, we know that DNA is used to store all this really complicated stuff about how to carry traits on from one phenotype to that generation or one generation to the next. Um, why can't we do this for digital, digital information? Uh, the stat I read a few months ago was that I think one kilogram of DNA would be enough to, if you were able to harness the power of DNA as efficiently for digital information as you are for biological information, one kilogram of DNA would be enough to store all the world's digital information, like the entire internet worth of information can go on to one kilogram. The problem there being, of course, that it is prohibitively expensive to write DNA, prohibitively expensive to read DNA. So there are a couple of research groups and at least one startup that I can think of that is working on more efficient ways of storing, more efficient schemes of storing digital information in DNA. Uh, the other advantage for DNA storage is that unlike tapes or uh, I guess hot storage, so like putting this on flash memory, not only is it physically much more compact, but you can store it ostensibly forever. So if you put a hard drive on a shelf and leave it there for 100 years, it probably won't be good in 100 years. Not the case of DNA. I mean, you can go and sequence the DNA of a woolly, woolly mammoth that was frozen in a cave 10,000 years ago. You'll be able to retrieve your, your Facebook pictures too as well. Um, then DNA computing. So it's harder. It's, it's a much more complicated thing, in my opinion, to understand because you need to not just recreate a pattern that you can read later on a different format, you need to actually perform the computing in DNA. Uh, so it's more complicated. I know less about it, um, but it's equally fascinating. I think the first applications you'll see with DNA computing won't be taking digital information and trying to replicate what you can do with a traditional electronic computer with it. It will be computing things in biology. So you can think of examples where you're trying to target a cancer cell and you want to run the computer, you, know, you, you want to run the computation like binary, given what I see, is this target cell yes, no, if yes, kill, if not, don't kill. Um, you could also see that being applied to, to industry as well as, as human health, I'd say. Uh, that's where it will start. I'm not sure it ever will get to a point where it makes sense to run a traditional digital <laughs> computation in a biological device. Like the input is just going to be incredibly expensive, as will the output. Cool. Yeah, I hadn't even heard about DNA computing, so that's Me pretty neither. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like it's still basic research rather than something that can be commercialized at this point. Uh, um, it's somewhere between. I'm trying to think of what I can, can and can't say. There's a lot of basic research being done on it. We are now at the point where it's starting to make sense for some commercial applications, not all of them. Like I said, pretty early, pretty early days for the commercialization aspect of this. Can you speak a little bit about some of the sci-fi investments you're excited about in the biotechnology space? 
three three investments that we have in the Symbio space, um, and they are actually really good companies for this conversation because they give you a sense for the fundamental technology that we need to push things forward, how it will be applied to current industry and where things should go in the future. So those companies are Synthigo, Zymergen, and Bolt Threads. So real quickly, Synthigo helps create what's called CRISPR kits. So you go and you order um, CRISPR that comes preloaded with the guide RNA that you want to target the part of the DNA that you want knocked out and the replacement, excuse me, it's actually done in RNA, but for our purposes, we'll just say DNA. Um, it comes with, and it, it's also prepackaged with whatever you want to replace DNA with. They're able to do this sort of a couple orders of magnitude cheaper, faster, um, and more accurately, so fewer errors um, than anybody else out there. So that's like the sort of base infrastructure that is it's companies like Synthigo and probably Synthigo in particular that's enabling this wave of Synbio companies to do what they do at the scale they do it. Um, Zymergen services companies that are multinational corporations that have multi-billion dollar fermentation uh, projects and they help optimize those fermentation processes in whatever way the company wants them to. They, interestingly enough, are actually more of an AI company than most AI companies I see. They are able to take an organism, look at its DNA, figure out what they want to optimize for, and because of the massive amounts of data they have um, on other environments in which that microbe interacts, they can do this dramatically more predictably and faster and cost-effectively than anyone else out there. So that's going to have a big impact on industry today. The third company is called Bolt Threads. Bolt Threads is making synthetic spider silk. Spider silk is stronger and more flexible than traditional silk. Uh, it's been... Does spider silk come from spiders? Great question. So that is the type of silk I'm talking about. Um, and for many years, for centuries, it has been sought after. Um, and there are a few garments that people have had that have made of spider silk. But harvesting silk from a spider is incredibly expensive. So when I say there's a few garments, I mean, literally, there might be a garment out there that like a queen had. <laughs> like a queen of something or a king of something. Uh, Bolt Threads has figured out how to take various proteins, combine them in such a way that they are chemically the same thing as spider silk, and they've also come up with the industrial processes to spin this into silk, into real silk. I mean, they have these giant turbines that are uh, pumping out real material that goes into real clothes. Hmm. The only reason that this makes any sort of economic sense is because Symbio is at a point, DNA synthesis and DNA reading is at a point where we can actually knock out different parts of a microbe and have it, instead of fermenting beer, we have it ferment a specific protein that you need to create spider silk. Uh, so this is a new material that humans have never been able to wear, and you know, we think that in the future it's going to play an important part in a whole lot of, a whole lot of apparel and maybe some other stuff too.
That's amazing. Are there any fabrics that we can buy right now that have spider silk? Uh, there is one, but I think it's sold out. So they just launched the first consumer product. Um, it's a tie. Um, I, yeah, I think they only made 50 of them. I wasn't able to get one. <laughs> it's really interesting looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's so it, it's... Uh, I don't know what the name of the style is, but I've seen other ties. A knit tie? Yeah, it's, it's a knit tie. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so it's a knit tie, but it's spider silk, which is pretty cool. Um, they should be launching some other stuff later this year. So, Pump, what was a well? How much did a knit tie cost? I guess this is not like you know at scale, obviously. Um, so you know, in the future, you can imagine it being cheaper. But. I think it was a few hundred bucks, um, but it's That's one of those bad. things where by by the time. By the time I saw that it was on sale, it was out. It was done. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they have that kind of success in their future product lines. They don't give you an investor discount. I, they might. <laughs> I, I, I should probably ask for one. Yeah, <laughs> that would be an awesome tie to wear. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know where I would wear. I guess like to weddings. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm wearing a vest now. That's about as fancy as it gets. <laughs> but it's still pretty amazing, though, to come from you know the price of where you know someone has to like be a queen to wear. Uh, yeah. spider silk tie to something that's you know just as expensive as like you know probably like your most expensive designer ties right it's yeah that's right. pretty cool and, and you could I mean there is an art to this as well that is just textiles like you go to Rhode Island School of Design you get a degree in textiles you don't necessarily go to Carnegie Mellon and study the science of textiles mm -hmm. so I think this gets really interesting when you start to blend it with other fabrics you're usually not wearing purely cotton or pure, purely polyester you're wearing silk blended with polyester blended with something else. So I think it's going to affect a lot of different parts of the apparel industry beyond. It sounded like there's a lot of potential applications for this, mm -hmm. like besides maybe just apparel and luxury apparel. Um, um, besides that, maybe something about the actual makeup of the textile itself? Is there like different strength properties or like, can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, the cool part about Bolt Thread's platform is that they can use it to optimize for just about any material property they want. Um, oh. And I think what will end up happening in the world of Synbio is that the first industry to be disrupted is going to be fermentation. The second one's going to be material science. That's fundamentally what Bolt Threads is when, when you think about it. They are making this new material that has never before been economically feasible to produce. And the next wave of successful symbio startups are all going to be making materials that were never before possible and optimizing around a set of characteristics for those. So like the crazy sci-fi application that we always talk about is like, what if there were spacesuits made of spider silk? I don't know if spacesuits is where it makes the most sense. Sure. Mm -hmm. But it's not hard to imagine a whole lot of places where it would. We know you're also really interested in VR. I don't know if you have any investments in VR, but could you describe why you're fascinated with that space? Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with VR for a couple of reasons. So we, the, the closest investment we have to being a pure VR investment is Unity, Unity 3D. Um, but they're not fundamentally a VR platform. They are a gaming platform who just so happens to be the best position to dominate VR. 
um, or whatever, they're the, the best graphics engine in the world. Um, I am interested in VR for two reasons. The first and probably most important is that I see the rest of the venture industry becoming less excited about VR. I think we were at sort of the first spike in the hype, or maybe the second spike in the hype bubble, probably six or 12 months ago. And it's died off, and now everyone's saying, ah, oh, we're seeing the same stuff over and over and over again. How many different cures for arachnophobia can <laughs> yeah. possibly come into our office and pitch us? Um, so we're just going to stop looking at the space altogether. And my investor spidey sense says now is the time to start getting really smart about it. Because even if cures for phobias aren't your cup of tea, which, by the way, that's like a great application of VR, um, probably not what I'd invest in, but a good one for somebody to build and make money off of nonetheless. The next thing, the next big thing that has network effects and has an application with a real defensibility story will probably come in the next 18 months or so. The pace at which things are improving in VR is remarkable. That's the second reason why I think VR is a really interesting place to look. I remember putting on my first VR headset uh, when I first started working at HVF, and it was this demo called Blue Marble. All you could really do is put on the headset and then look around, and you were in the space capsule above Earth, and it was pretty cool, but not that cool. Like, it worked, and that was that was about it. That was about, you know, it worked, and it looked kind of cool, and, like, the Earth looks crazy when you're out of space. <laughs> um, it's like going to an IMAX movie, right? It's fun, but yeah, 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 you yeah, do yeah. it all the time. Yeah, I mean, like, the impressive, again, the impressive part is that it was like, yeah, this, this, is, this is real. This could be a thing. And then maybe 18 months later, a friend invited me to, I think it was a Vive demo. I had to go to, like, some basement at some startup in Soma, and... The first thing you do is you walk into this room, like the full Vive setup, two sensors, and put on the headset, and then you're on like a wooden ship below the water, and this giant whale comes from behind you and swims around you. And I remember just feeling in the pit of my stomach, this is crazy. This is absolutely insane. It feels like I should be able to reach out and touch and touch mm -hmm. this whale. And part of that was because the graphics were a little bit better. Part of that was because they had actually figured out what to do with your hands. You could, you could like see the controllers in space as they were as they were in front of you. Um, but that was in a period of eighteen months. Like in, in eighteen months, we had gone from grainy demo hooked up to like my friend's giant tower of a computer to I am beneath the ocean swimming with a whale. Um, still hard to see the exact applications of that. Fast forward another 18 months and you've got things like Robo Recall and such super intense experiences and people are finally figuring out how to actually apply this to enterprise and actually sort of quote unquote fix the input problem. I'll add a third reason that I'm excited about VR, which is that I think people are underestimating the power of blocking out the real world. I think everybody's looking at VR saying, when's it going to get as good as being there? When's it going to get as good as having a real in-person meeting where you feel like you're connecting with this human being and they're underestimating the value of isolating yourself from everything around you? I go into work and I put on headphones because 
I don't want to hear what's going around me. I want to focus into my inbox or Excel spreadsheet or the report I'm reading or the whatever it is. This is the same thing, but for your visual field. And I think it's more powerful. So I don't know what, again, like I, I don't have crystal ball. I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur, at least right now. So I can't tell you what the ideal application is for sort of boring enterprise. But I think people are underestimating the powerful of this for really basically mundane desk jobs. That's what gets me excited. Doing about your investment cool. banking spreadsheet and like, a beautiful <laughs> fantasy world or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or even just like not a beautiful fantasy. Like what if you were doing your self spreadsheet in the same office that you were, but when you looked to your left, it wasn't your buddy like. Yeah. Trying, annoying you. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. Trying to disturb you from exactly. getting your stuff done. Yeah. yeah. Like trying to convince you to go to the Hamptons. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is that investment bankers do nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people will talk about how there's this problem when you put on headsets, you feel very isolated. And I don't, so not ignoring the societal implications of that, I'm not convinced that a priori that is a bug of VR. I think that is just something that happens with it. Just like the internet, right? just like any other broad sweeping technology, there's a cost and a benefit to every part of it. Do we spend too much time on social media? Probably. Is social media an incredibly powerful tool to like stay connected with your friends and have fun and blow some steam? Yes, both of those things are probably true. Same thing. Same thing's gonna exist for VR. Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe like you put on your VR headset and the place you work most productively is a dungeon. <laughs> like, that could that could be true. You probably shouldn't spend too much time in that dungeon, yeah. but you also probably shouldn't spend too much time in the office, <laughs> like at least past a certain age when you have like family and other mm -hmm. things to, to take care of. What is your long-term vision for yourself? Maybe in the next two years, three mm -hmm. years, five years, what does that look like? What's the ideal goal for you? And will it incorporate any of these technologies that you seem really interested in? Well, I, I hope it will incorporate at least one, if not all of the technologies that we've talked about today. I think that um, a future in which I'm really happy is one in which I'm helping these companies and these products that help the world in a really big way, really impactful way, get there more efficiently, less painfully, eh, actually maybe not less painfully, that's, that, that's overrated, but certainly get there more quickly. And if that means that I'm doing that on this side of the table and investing, that's great. Like I, I made the choice three or four years ago to commit to this side of the table because I saw entrepreneurs working on things in Symbio and in AI and in FinTech that I knew I wouldn't be able to start as effectively myself. So I'm more than happy to keep doing this for as long as it takes to help them launch these things and get them in the world. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in this week with us. If you enjoyed that episode as we did with Eric, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or both. We really appreciate your support. You can also find a number of links and resources in our show notes about this week's episode. 
Thanks again, and be sure to tune in with us for next week on Imagine Human.